0: Kenny Rogers' advice in The Gambler any good from a poker perspective?
1: Welcome to Season 2 of The Unforgiving Sixty with your hosts Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show... Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go, always, a little further.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm joined here today by Tim Curtis. G'day, Ben. G'day, Tim. And also Mark Wales in the studio. G'day. Hey, Mark. And we're very fortunate to be joined via Skype, all the way from Northern Italy by Alec Trelli. How are you, Alec?
2: Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me here, and I'm excited to be here.
0: We're pretty pumped to have you. This is our first chat with someone with poker skills. And I'm really interested, not just because I'm not good at the game, but also because of all of the psychology and the the people skills that come along with with. Playing poker at a professional level, but maybe we could start by talking a bit about your childhood, Alec. Where did you grow up, and what got you into to what you're doing today?
2: Yeah, I grew up in Orange County, California, and I have what I would say is probably a typical um, story of a someone that came up in the poker boom which is that I started playing home games with friends and I, I won my first time playing. And as they say of, of any gambler, if you hear the stories of people that get involved in, in whatever it is, in, in stock trading or real estate, they, typically their first deal goes well. And a lot of times it's just due to luck. I actually mm-hmm. heard uh, Ray Dalio talking about this that the, the in, a, in a TED Talk that he, you know, he bought a, a stock when he was 12 and it went up and he was hooked. And the same thing happened to me in poker where like I won $12 my first time playing and I just thought, this is so easy. I'm just going to do this. I'm the, I'm the best. Right. And of course it was blind luck. And I was, you know, (laughs) super fond of my ability that I didn't have, but, uh, (laughs) but that really hooked me to the game and I really fell in love with it. And I was never great at sports in high school. I mean, I, I didn't make the basketball team my freshman year of high school. So that tells you something. Um, I was like in the, the, there were two football teams and I was on the junior one and I quit after my first year. I was in musical theater. And so I, like, I never, um, Like shined in the athletics or anything, and poker I felt like was something I had a little bit of a knack for, and I could be good at because it was a mental game. And so, uh, I was really drawn to it at an impressionable time in my life, and I just really started playing a lot in high school. There were these home games that went every single like day almost after school, and I would play four, five, six hours um, with friends. And I would, you know, I read a couple books that were available at the time, and I started winning. And I was one of the best players in our little circuit. And so that Mm -hmm. gave me a lot of confidence. And when I was 18, I put some money online on the internet while I was still in high school. And I entered a tournament one day after it was a $30 buy-in tournament. I think there were 600 players. And I got first place for like over two grand, which at the time was a million dollars yeah, to me. <laughs> yeah, Life changing. Right. And, um, <laughs> and so there were these like little I mean, little there were these there were these milestones that I had throughout the early parts of my career where I also won, you know, one of the tournaments I played with friends in a home game where I won like a hundred dollars, you know, and so I had these little these little wins that really kept me going. And the real turning point for me was I was 18. I was at Southern Methodist University, SMU in Dallas, Texas. And I was playing a lot of online poker at the time because I started playing in high school. So this was, you know, six months or a year later. And I built up a little bit of a bankroll, bankroll meaning amount of money that you use that's allocated towards poker. And I was making a decent amount in high school. I had some weeks where I would make a couple grand, you know, in a week playing online poker. And so I remember thinking that I'm at a point where. I know there's a next level and I, I have the ambition to travel around the world and play in these big major tournaments that are appearing through the circuit, kind of like you see in tennis where there's the ATP and the majors and there's, the, there's that for poker and the, and the same as golf. But you can't do that and still be in college and get good grades. It just, it's just not going to work, right? So yeah. I knew something had to give. And I remember thinking, I remember evaluating my worst case scenario and thinking, okay, the worst thing that happens i'm 18 right now okay freshman year smu i'm 19 years old is the worst case scenario i give this a shot for a year i i lose the 20 grand i've saved up and i'm 19 years old i'm back at smu i'm broke just like everybody else in in college and i'm a year older right so i'm one year behind everybody else in in life right the best case scenario is that i make it like i i run the 20 grand up to not not that it's about the money but like i I progress with my bankroll and and everything that that means. It means I'm affording I, I'm, I'm able to afford traveling around the world, paying for my mm. own buy-ins, maybe getting a sponsorship, playing in these tournaments, supporting myself through cash games and traveling around the world, you know, living my dream of playing poker while I'm seeing all these different places at a you know, at a cool time in my life where I don't have responsibility of, you know, uh, whatever comes with being older. Yep. And so I was like, you know, there's there's disproportionate risk-reward here. Like, there's a huge upside and a small downside. And it seems like a crazy decision at the time. I mean, everyone told me I was absolutely crazy that I was never going to make it. But it just, you know, I evaluate things in terms of, like, the, the the cost-benefit. And so when I really looked at it, it just seemed like it made sense to me. Um, I'd also proven myself as an ability, as a poker player, wasn't, like, something I'd never done. I'd been playing for two, three years at the time. So I went all in and... I really never looked back. I mean, I had a lot of ups and downs in my career. Um, When I was 19, I uh, did very well in poker. I won the biggest tournament in online history at the time, and I was one of the biggest winners in the world that year playing online poker. And then the next year, I lost back most of what I made. So I went a seven-figure upswing and a seven-figure downswing in the span of 2 years when i was 19 and 20 which was very difficult for me <laughs> then i had to rebuild it back over you know the early part of my 20s and so there's been a lot of ups and downs it was definitely a roller coaster and largely due to mismanaging my money and mismanaging risk and being a little bit too arrogant and winning a lot of money at a young age but you know you learn a lot of lessons you learn a lot of lessons along the way and come out stronger and things have gone well you know i've been at it for 15 years and so that's a little so you, bit about
0: yeah so you, you talk about that decision at 18 and what, you know, from the outside might look like a crazy decision to throw in university and, and chase uh, the, the poker scene, but you you talk through a very rational, logical risk assessment. with, And, you know, as as you painted it, high upside, limited downside, you come back a year later. Had you drawn a line in the sand? Was there a date that if I haven't cracked the big time by... You know my 19th birthday i will go back to university
2: yeah i said that i was going to go back the next year like so if i was totally broke and things weren't working out and i had so-called failed at poker by the time enrollment ended for uni the next year whenever that was i uni started in august i dropped out in october and i think enrollment ended in may don't quote me on this it was a long time sure. ago but something like that right so i was like okay i have I'm gonna come back in a year, but I really have like seven, eight months, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: whatever so, the time was, to to try this out. Um, and, and of course, it, idea.
0: and it went well. You you said seven figure upswing. That sounds in anyone's book like a, a pretty good year.
2: Yeah, that wasn't my first year. <clears throat> okay. That was my second year out of got it out of college. I moved to Australia because I couldn't play poker legally in the U.S. Uh, live. You have to be 21.
0: Ah, uh, see, yeah, right.
2: You can play on, so I was playing online poker, but I couldn't I couldn't play in Vegas. I couldn't I couldn't play the tournament circuit, which is what I, I wanted to do. I wanted to travel and play events, but I couldn't do that in the U.S. I couldn't play the World Poker Tour and the World Series of Poker, but I could play the World Poker Tour in Aruba or the Bahamas or Melbourne or these other cities I went to go visit. So I moved to Australia. I went to Australia to go play, and I ended up living there because I, I loved it so much. I just bought a one-way ticket and never left, really, uh, for like six months, and, and it was there I played a lot of online poker <clears throat> As well as some live poker, and things really went well for me.
3: And Alec, talk to us about life in Australia. Where were you and what were your observations?
2: I was in Melbourne and I I went to Sydney for two weeks around New Year's in 2007, I think. Uh, And then, so the New Year's for 2007, and then I went to live in Melbourne. I actually lived in a place called the Docklands, which is like near that arena where they play rugby. Um and so that was really cool. It was like new and up and coming at the time and I had I lived with a, uh, some poker friends which was really cool because we got to like live together and play poker. It was amazing. It was one of the best times of my life. I absolutely loved Australia. I think it's I mean if it, proximity is the main reason why I, I just don't live there today. If Australia was like where the US is, I would prefer Australia <laughs> to be just transported to where the US is, but yeah. you know, <clears throat> practicality and, And logistics don't really allow me to live there. It's literally the furthest point in the world from where I am now, which is Italy, which is where I spend part of my time. So it's just like, it's just not practical, but all things being equal, it'd be my number one place that I've been, um, that I would love to live. That was amazing. So
0: in, in that period, you, you're playing a lot of live poker, you're playing online poker. What does your average day look like?
2: That's a good question. Um, I guess it's sort of a function of when I went to bed because I would get up about seven, eight hours after that point. And I'll kind of walk you through what that what that means. So I would usually get up. I would go on a run just to kind of clear my head and exercise. You feel a lot better, especially when you're sitting inside all day playing online poker. Um, I had a laptop, and I would put you know four different screens up at the same time. Sometimes even six screens, which on a laptop is quite difficult to do. Uh, but you want to play multiple tables because you're you're multiplying your win rate, right? So if your win rate is a function of the amount of hands you play, you can multiply that win rate by playing more tables. Now, granted, <laughs> your your decision quality is going to be sacrificed a little bit. I,
0: I was just going to say, I cannot walk and chew gum at the same time, let alone play sort of six games of poker. There, there must be a point where you you, you tap out, but you, you reckon six is doable?
2: Six is doable. Four is really, I think, the sweet spot where the quality of your decisions is marginally compromised, but the increase in hands gets you that 4x multiple so obviously if you can make equal quality decisions if you were a robot you would play infinite amount of tables but because your decision quality is compromised the more tables you're playing at the same time you have to find the balance and so i found i found that like i could play at 9, 85 90 percent of capacity playing four tables and so you're you're getting you know you're not getting 4x the multiple on your hourly you're getting three point whatever but it's yeah. it's it's that sweet spot. Whereas when you start to play eight, nine tables, you might only play at fifty percent of capacity, and and you can't really afford to play your B game when you're competing in the biggest games in the world, right? You have to play your A game. So, um, so I would I would try and find that sweet spot around three or four tables, and I would play a lot of poker. Like I would eat while I was playing. I would. I would just bring my computer around the house with me as I had to like do other things and like whatever you know like if I wanted to make food I would bring my computer to the kitchen while I would like get something from the fridge and get water like because you don't really (laughs) want to sit out in the games and you you could sit out for five minutes at a time but if you sit out for longer than that you'll get kicked off the table so you don't really have Mm -hmm. much time to do other things and there's a long waiting list of people that want to play because there's only six seats in the game and anytime there's A player that's not very good with large amounts of money that's losing there's there's a line of people waiting to play with them so you have to kind of wait to get in the games and sometimes it takes a while but when you get in the games you're kind of locked in for the duration of that session so i would play anywhere from i don't know six to twelve fourteen hours a day five thousand hands a day of poker something like that and then when i was done for the day depending on what time it was we would maybe go out in the evenings or do something fun and then i would go to sleep or whatever I, I just grinded a lot of poker i mean this was when there was a lot of poker to be played and um i traveled to a lot of places but sometimes i would find that there were such good games and so much opportunity and your opportunity cost of you know playing is always so high because at any in any given day depending on the stakes you're playing you could you know one hand could be four or five even six figures right. so it's just so tempting to put all of your time into playing poker while. The games were good and i was very aware that um just intuitively that markets would be very efficient and that this wouldn't last forever and we were in a we were in a, in a in a situation where there was a large amount of opportunity and not a lot of people that were very competent at poker relative to the amount of bad players especially given the amount of money they were playing with and so i knew that was going to be more efficient eventually Either, I didn't expect the laws to change, which which ended up happening, which banned poker in the US. But I, I knew that even in spite of that, the players and the competition would get better, games would be more efficient, and I wouldn't be able to win the amount of money I was winning at the time. So I really put in as many hours as I could while the games were good, because the, it was just so inefficient. Uh, to the, the, the market was just uh, so immature at that time. <laughs>
0: You had the the sort of arbitrage, um, so you're making money, and you you're aware of the you know making hay while the sun shines. But were you also viewing this as training? It it sounds very much like this was an apprenticeship of sorts, or you were getting your your ten thousand hours or or whatever. In were you viewing it as as training and developing skills, or were you viewing it as just execute while it's good?
2: I think a combination of the both, and the reason I'm saying. we talked about the former where I was like okay execute while it's good but at the same time I was aware even at a very young age that I wasn't this wasn't going to be my life's calling like I I love poker and I ended up competing at it for many years but I knew that like this wasn't going to be something I was doing when I was 40 I kind of looked at it like an athlete would as like a chapter of their life but then after granted poker you can play I mean you see players playing in their 60s, 70s, and even 80s, because it's a mental game. As long as you're mentally sharp, you could, you know, there's a long shelf life for a poker player. But at the same time, I knew that I didn't want to dedicate my whole life to poker. And I felt like, A, it was a great opportunity, you know, immediately or superficially just to build a nice nest egg, which gives you options, right? So money just gives you options and leverage to do Mm -hmm. other things in life. But I also knew that, like, you know, I'm building up a skill set that, is also going to be somewhat translatable to other areas like things like decision making or risk management or bankroll management or not, you know, being able to separate the quality of a decision from the outcome is just like a, an important concept to understand in life. And I, I started to learn from a young age that poker teaches you things, but it was also it teaches you these sorts of things. Um, but I was also aware that I wasn't going to play my whole life. I remember my dad asking me when I dropped out of school if like what my kind of long term plan was, I was just going to like play poker. And I was saying, I told him at the time, I think when I was you know 25 or 30, I was going to stop and do something else. Um, and that was when I was like 18 or 19. So I just kind of had this feeling like this was a chapter, but it wasn't the whole book.
3: Mm. Alec, do you ever play poker in casinos? I mean, recreationally
2: <laughs> not really. I mean, I play a lot of poker in casinos, but like it, it it's sort of hard to play. I mean, I have fun playing. I love playing poker, but it's I don't do what you would expect someone that goes to Vegas for the weekend and goes to the blackjack table and that that image of them, you know, drinking a beer and laughing with everybody and having a great time and playing. I mean, I have a great time and play, but it's, it's a different type of great time. It's more, but it's not like a, it, it, yeah, it's not a recreational thing. I don't, I never gamble on table games. I've never bet sports. I've never, I've played like one hand of roulette in my life. Just one, you know, like I don't bet, I don't gamble. I don't do anything like that. It's more just like I'm here for business and this is investing and I try and put myself in high expectation spots where I have a mathematical edge over the competition in whenever I risk my money and if I do that multiple times just like the house always wins you know I'm always going to have an edge and if I manage my money correctly and have enough you know bullets in the tank so to speak I'm always going to make a profit in the long term. So once you kind of are in that mindset and you play poker that way it's hard to like casually just go to the table and, and mess around. And that's because you you know, you know all the numbers, you know all the odds, you know all the math. So it feels like painful to play a hand just quote for fun that you know is a mathematical underdog because you you know, you're you're quantifying your decision in terms of expectation. So you're 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 saying to yourself, okay, I'm calling a hundred dollars with this hand, but my expectation is I'm losing you know, $20 on this call. And like, that's just painful. Right. So like once you're conscious of all the numbers and the math, it's hard to not play well because you're just, you're being inefficient, right. You're losing money. um, Yeah. For better or for worse. (laughs) Yeah. I don't really, I I guess I don't really, yeah, I don't really do that.
3: Okay. Big question. Monikers. Is it necessary to have a moniker? And if so, what was yours or what is yours?
2: No, although some people do have nicknames and um, stuff like that. I actually had, I mean, when you play online poker, everyone has one. And so sometimes you're known by that nickname because, you know, people just see that avatar of you playing online and they see your name. So, of course, I didn't know that I might have thought twice about, and I think a lot of people might have thought twice about these things, but everyone makes their avatar when, at least in my generation, we made it when we were in like high school when we got on AIM, which was AOL Instant Messenger. So my first avatar was like 12 and I made that. And then when it got time to sign up for a poker site, I didn't really think too much about what I was doing. I just was like, okay, I'm going to make like the same, you know, you just use the same screen name. You're not thinking about like, there's going to be articles written about you winning a tournament and like, this is how you're going to be known. Right. So my, my nickname is actually kind of a funny story. Uh, I was in so i actually changed nicknames once when i was in high school my freshman year i think this is when i first made my aol screen name i was in football and they, they the coach called people by their last name and we had this armenian coach and he tried to pronounce my last name Ali and he was just you know he's like tr- 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 it's and that's what he called me because he couldn't like he just you know he just like whatever forgot and stumbled so like that's what he called me and this is what people on the football team would call me because they would they would like kind of mock me and joke and mess around <laughs> so when i made my screen name i made the screen name trajillo and it doesn't really mean anything it's kind of hard to say and sort of like awkward nobody can pronounce it correctly but this is like how i was known in poker and so that was my screen name for i don't know a decade um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> um it could have been worse i suppose i'm
2: thinking yeah you it could of have been worse i mean oh, there were I would some have given people myself there. at
0: that age
3: yeah uh you Have you always been good at maths, Alec?
2: Yeah, I I always enjoyed math, and I I always enjoyed uh, like the geometry. I remember that was really fun in high school, and I think that's the type of analytical math that you really have to be good at to play poker because it's 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 those proofs that we you did where you have to like prove that one angle equals the angle of the triangle and like if a plus b equals c, then b plus b, you know, whatever the whole the whole linear thinking really comes in handy in poker. And I I remember being the first one to say that when I was doing that, I was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. Like, when are we ever going to have to prove that the angle of a triangle, like, you know, you're just thinking that in high school because you're thinking uh, in a vacuum, right? You're like, of course, you're never going to literally prove the angle of a triangle has to match the other side or whatever. But like that thought process in general comes in handy in poker. And obviously the math comes in handy too. Like you need to be able to, add quickly and divide and come to fractions and percentages and do that sort of algebra in real time. And that's really important, but that could be learned, right? Like even if you were never great at addition, multiplication, division, and like fractions and ratios in real time, like that is a a level that I think is pretty easy to learn, but it's really the, the logic and even the psychology thing that I think is, is is sort of math based, but that, that is, uh, the, the, the deeper level, there's the conceptual understanding that I think really, really comes in handy in poker.
0: So let's talk a bit about the psychology of poker because obviously it's a game with rules, you know, the, and and not a particularly complex or complicated set of rules. But clearly, it's about people, isn't it? It's about interactions with other humans. Can can you share with us some of your your observations of the psychology of poker?
2: Yes, yeah, so there's a great quote that. Um, I forgot who it's, who it's by and I am paraphrasing, but it's like most people think poker is a game of cards played with people, but it's a game of people played with cards. And I think mm-hmm. that's a great way of thinking about poker. Like it's really, it's not a game of cards. It's, it's, it, it, it Especially when you're playing live poker. When you're playing online poker, it is a game of cards because you can't see the other people. You don't know who you're playing against and it is a very math-based game. But when you are playing live poker and you're sitting against an opponent and you bet, you know, they bet $10,000 in a hand. Like, yes, you're doing the math, you're running the numbers, you're, you're you're figuring out your equity and your expectation and all these sorts of things. But there's a huge psychological component of like just the simple fact of this guy look when he's putting in that much money. Is he, is he telling the truth or is he BSing me? And that's something that is hard to be taught, but it's something empirically that you learn over time by having a lot of experience and getting good with people. And I think people that are generally have There's people that have a proclivity for it and some people that don't. And and the people that are good at understanding other people excel in live poker because they can get a feel for a situation, right? If you generally have a good read on people, if you can trust them, if they're someone you like or you are, you know, can tell on a first date if you're gonna go on a second date within the first five minutes, like if you're good at that, that really comes in handy in poker because that's a lot of what you're doing. And you really see people exposed the most because when someone is you know concealing their emotions betting large sums of money it's the ultimate test of can they do that effectively right like it's it's very mm. hard to to conceal the fact that you really want your opponent to fold and you have to it's not that you want them to fold and you bet a dollar where you're indifferent pre- pretty much indifferent about the outcome you want them to fold and you're playing for large sums of money where you really want to win that pot and and, and you're not you know a lot of people aren't used to risking large amounts of money all the time on a daily basis unless you happen to be an investor or a professional poker player so if someone comes to the casino once a week once a month and they're playing for a large amount of money because they happen to you know they, they, they are a wealthy businessman for example um, it, it's 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 some some people are very good at it but some lack that skill of being able to conceal their in- intentions and it, the better you are at discerning that the better you're gonna win. Uh, the more you're going to win, excuse me. And I think it's also important to understand like how people's emotions are changing over time. So the same person in a different circumstance might play completely different. So for example, when someone sits down at the table, the first hour, they're going to play in a neutral state of mind because they're not winning, they're not losing. They're typically focused, they're fresh, and they're they're really trying to win, they're in the game. But as that player wins and loses pots, you have to understand how that's going to impact the Future decisions they're going to make. So let's say they just lost a pot that's a large pot. They might play more aggressive or gamble more in a future pot. This is called tilt when people play poorly because of you know bad they make bad decisions because they lost money in a previous hand. So mm-hmm. you have to understand how the psychology of each player is changing in real time. And every hand is there's a new data point. So there's a new update. So it's a, it's a very stimulating game because if you're really you know playing at a high level and paying attention hand is a new puzzle. And so the fact that there was money transacted in the previous hand shouldn't technically influence how the next hand is going to be played from a a game theory standpoint. But Hmm. from a practical standpoint, it actually will influence how the next hand is going to be played. Because if someone just won a pot, they might be less likely to gamble. Or if they're about to quit the game because they got a phone call from their wife and they have to go, they might try and win their money back in the last hand. So there's, like, so many different variables that influence decision-making, and your job is to be able to synthesize all the information and come up with a cohesive narrative about what is happening in the world around you and how that's going to impact whether or not this person is going to bluff more or bluff less, for example. So it's really fun, and it's it's very stimulating yeah. to do. And And really, no two hands are the same, also because there's, you know nearly infinite combinations of of ways the deck can be dealt in terms of a numeric standpoint, but also because no two people are the same. So you're always playing against different people, and, and, and these people's emotions are always changing, so it's like, there's just infinite possibilities, and so it's really a stimulating game.
0: And what about your own defenses? Apart from playing a lot of poker, are there things you can do to get better at concealing your emotions, to build up your poker face?
2: Um, I think that is mainly just experience and practice. It's, there. there's, yeah, it's it's hard to do. I, I, it's something that like, you know, your first time playing, you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be not used to playing with the amount of money and it's going to be hard for you to do well. And I remember in the beginning, like as much as I tried to tell myself that I was, I had a strong hand when I was weak and I tried these mental sort of things, it, yeah. it does take some experience. And it's kind of like, if you've never drunk alcohol before, it's going to be hard to have two or three drinks and not feel something. Whereas if you or coffee, like but if you do it every day, then you build up a little bit of a tolerance. And the same is true of poker. like when when there's a certain threshold where you're comfortable dealing with the amount of money you're playing with, then it's easier to transact in that amount of money without feeling an emotional charge. and And when you're indifferent to the amount of money you're playing with, then you have an edge. And this is why sometimes, um the pros are actually at a disadvantage over the businessmen because the pros are on a limited bankroll, right? They care need the money to survive or they maybe they're using the money to pay their bills but like someone that's playing with discretionary money that they are indifferent about can make a bluff or make a play and not care about the outcome simply because they have so much money relative to the size of the game they're playing that puts them in a spot where they have leverage even if they're at a skill disadvantage so this is what happened a lot of the times in the in the big games I was playing out in Macau when I lived there uh, from 2014. Three years, we were playing in these very big private games with these Chinese businessmen, and they they would always up the ante and play bigger stakes because they knew they could just apply pressure on the pros. There's mm-hmm. also a technique called Martingale, where if you keep doubling the stakes, eventually you know you'll you'll win your money back. <laughs> but um, but aside from that, uh, they they also knew that you know they can afford to bluff in a spot where. It, it, it mattered to the professional whether they would be right or wrong, and there was a lot of pressure on the pro to make the right decision, whereas if the amateur makes the wrong decision, they can just rebuy, right? So that puts them at a huge advantage. And so I guess the, the, the takeaway here is, if you know, playing a game where you can afford the size of the game you're playing puts you at a huge advantage, and one of the mistakes people make is they get in over their heads, they they buy in or invest more than they can afford to lose, and so each pot becomes very meaningful for them, and that that reduces the quality of their decisions. Whereas if you have a hundred buy-ins to the game you're playing, if you lose one buy-in, it's pretty inconsequential. So that gives you a leg up over the competition.
3: And Alec, how do you prevent the emotion of the previous hand overwhelming the current hand? I've heard you previously talk about techniques that you personally use to decompress the success or failure of a previous hand and ready yourself for the next hand, the next event.
2: Great question. So two things, and um, these are things I've developed over the years, and, and work with clients to help them to do as well uh, when I'm when I'm coaching poker. And the first thing is to have like a mental routine. I call it a power routine. And, and the premise is, if you watch other athletes before they go hit a point or take a shot or whatever, they always do something to get ready for that shot. It's not just like Tiger Woods hits, walks up to the the, the, the golf ball and throws back the beer and hits the ball. Like he has his whole little like mojo going. And same thing with a basketball player before they shoot a free throw, a tennis player before they shoot a point at tennis. There's always something they do to get them in that flow state, to shoot that point, to execute at the highest level. And the premise is simple. Like there's a lot of pressure on the line. Maybe it's match point for the Wimbledon and they don't want to be thinking about the fact that they have to make this point to the best of their ability. They just want to play and, and eliminate all the noise and chatter or ego or whatever is going on uh, externally and just focus on playing the point the best way possible. And the same is true in a hand of poker. Like my goal is just to play the next hand the best way possible and eliminate the past and n- reduce the pressure of the situation around me because maybe, you know, you're in, in a televised event or maybe, you know, if you win or lose the next couple of hands, it might be large amounts of money that are changing hands. And so those things cloud judgment. So I developed a power routine that I have in every hand of poker I play and it's basically a simple premise where I I tell myself a command every single hand of poker like while the dealer is cutting the cards and this puts me back in that mental state of mind where like my focus goes from maybe there's chatter about the fact that i just lost a hand or i made a mistake or i did something wrong or i took a bad beat which means i got unlucky in a hand of poker and now i tell myself a command where i'm saying alec my goal is to play the next hand the best way possible and i have a little bit more of a process i go through but that's that's the gist of it where I, I use what's called a trigger, which is something that happens externally that triggers me to take this uh, mental response, and then I repeat that command to myself, and now I'm back and focused. And so this has become like a Pavlovian response, where every time the dealer cuts the cards, I kind of like you know, you know, uh, release the tension in my shoulders and jaw, take a little deep breath in, and repeat this phrase to myself. And this has been my power routine. So it gets me focused in every hand I play. And now I'm looking for the action. And my focus goes from whatever it was in the past to playing the hand the best way possible. The second thing I try and do, and and I think people might be able to relate to this, is if you ever notice how much easier it is to give advice to your friends about what they should do in a certain situation. But it's sometimes hard to figure out what you should do. And I feel hmm. I feel like the the truth is in the fact that it's easier to see things where you're disconnected from the outcome when you're in, not that you're indifferent to what happens in your friend's life, but you're much further removed than you are what happens in your life, because in your life, everything is happening in first person. But in your friend's life, it's happening in third person. So it's that that fundamental shift makes makes clarity in the decision making process. So what I do is I try and hack that and I and I actually talk to Alec in the third person, and it sounds arrogant or ridiculous, but it really does help to create separation from your awareness and what you need to be true. And so I say things like, Alec, what is the best decision here? And now instead of me looking at my opponent, there's someone behind Alec looking at Alec, looking at his opponent. And that fundamental difference creates space and allows me to see the situation objectively as if I'm looking over the shoulder of this person who happens to be Alec. And I'm giving advice to Alec about what to do against the opponent. And so now I can see the situation clearly. And I'm saying, what should Alec do here? And by asking what should Alec do instead of what should I do, that space is created. And now I can give advice to my friend, who happens to be me, so I'm obviously the benefactor, but I can see the situation a little more clearly, and I can start to analyze the situation rationally instead of emotionally. Because in poker, you always have a very strong motive, right? You really want to win this pot, and that might lead you to make a a suboptimal decision. For example, you might want to win the pot so badly that you decide to bluff all of your money, even though it's not a profitable situation of bluff. But because your desire is so big, it clouds your judgment because you're so connected to the outcome. But when I look over Alec's shoulder and I say, what should Alec do? Well, Alec probably shouldn't bluff because this guy is, you know, emotional and super tilted and he's not going to fold. So Alec should just check and concede the pot and, and and cut his losses. Right. So this framework really helps me make rational decisions in real time. And that's helped a lot of my clients as well to, to go through that process.
3: Staying with the theme of bluffing and maybe more broadly reading people, what's poker taught you about body language?
2: Mm, So it's hard, I guess, it's hard to, to directly correlate certain actions to the strength of someone's hand. Okay, so let me give you an example. Like I... I see people try this at the poker table and they try and draw conclusions about correlation when there's not necessarily causation. So for example, I was playing a hand of poker one time in LA and I, I made a big bet on the, the river. I made a big bet on, on the end of the last card. And I turned over my food had arrived and it was been sitting there a while. Cause this hand was going on for like five, seven minutes. And the guy was sitting and he was clearly like taking a long time. So I turned over to grab a piece of Broccoli, whatever she had brought me and I started eating because I was just waiting and I was like I had no decision to make in the hand. So the hand was kind of over for me. And the guy decided that because the way I ate my broccoli, he was going to call me now because he thought I was bluffing. I happen to have a really strong hand. Um, But like my point is that he's reading into this situation and trying to draw conclusions when they're not necessarily there's not there's not necessarily one to be drawn and so i'm really careful about trying to say oh the way he touched his hat means he's bluffing there are some tells that we call them where like people um if they act quickly they're typically bluffing or if they look away from the table they typically have a strong hand these are general tells and they there there's a correlation between that and strength of the hand But I think the best way to think about it is if I asked you, let's say you meet someone for the first time and uh, like uh, you're, you know, you meet, you go out, you meet this girl at a coffee shop and you're really attracted to her. If I ask you why, it's really hard to quantify. You're not going to be able to tell me necessarily, oh, because her hair is blonde. I mean, it just doesn't really work like that. Or because she has this physical feature or because she smiled in this way. I mean, those are things you can try and put into words. But I really feel like it's your intuition making these inferences and quantifying things that your conscious mind can't understand. And that's your gut intuition. And if you have that strong gut instinct about something, it's usually right because it's usually, uh, like it's kind of like a superpower. It's, it's something that can't necessarily be put into words, but it's your subconscious just quantifying a lot of data. That's how I kind of look at it. Now that is not to be confused with an emotional decision, which is you know, you're really connected to an outcome or you're frustrated that you just lost a hand or this guy is pissing you off across the table and you're going to bluff him to get back at him. That's ego. That's emotion. So if you can separate the the, the the motive of your decision and you have a strong, a compelling, intuitive reason to make a decision that is worth listening to and, and the best decisions I make in poker and in life I feel like are those decisions where I listen to my gut and I know something to be true and I might not be able to explain it with words necessarily and it might not make sense but I just know it to be right and for example dropping out of college was one of those examples I mean yes I explained it with the cost-benefit analysis but I just knew that like this is the right direction for my life and those big decisions you make in poker or in life are typically not things that you can do with a list of pros and cons right you're not going to say like okay should I marry this woman well She has, you know, this feature and not this feature. And like, you know, it's just something it's either right or it's not. (laughs) And then there's also logical decisions. And those are the last types of decisions I think you can make at the table where it's like you're you're making a decision based on the numbers and the math without any instinctual instinctual read. And these happen very often. It's not every day that you walk into a coffee shop and you're really attracted to someone, or you meet a, a person that you know is going to be a lifelong friend. You're, a lot of the, a lot of the interactions and decisions you make in in life or business or poker are decisions where you're you're running the numbers because you don't have that strong instinctual read. So this is how I kind of separate the three parts of the, the decision. Um, and so I do use some of the body language. And whenever I get that strong instinctual read, I try and not override my logical mind. I, I try and not override my intuition. Excuse me, with logic or emotion. And I try and listen to that intuition. And that's sometimes hard to do because your logical mind could creep in and try and rationalize a situation that you know is wrong or you know is right. But I feel like the times that I listen to my intuition, good things happen. And that's how I've navigated poker and largely life as well.
3: Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. We've seen you in pictures wearing sunglasses, hat, headphones. Some might think that they're props, is there a role for those things?
2: So it's, it's, it's funny because um, I probably wore those in my, or I definitely wore those in the earlier parts of my career. So sometimes I wear, I wore glasses, but I would say very rarely, certainly not in the last, I don't know, five or seven years and hats as well. I went through this phase where I wore hats because I actually liked wearing hats. I thought it was like stylish and cool, um, but not because it concealed any facial expression or anything like that. I mean certainly hat is not really that uh that preventative, but sunglasses for sure. You see some poker players wearing sunglasses, but I honestly think it's more stereotypical than it is uh something that you're actually seeing happen. I would say if you go to a table, it was more popular in like, you know, 2003 when poker was booming in the US where you you saw that on TV a lot because that was like the cliché stereotype of a poker player. But I think in the last five ten years it happens a lot less, and you might see one out of nine players at a table wearing glasses. It does, I mean, it does conceal emotions for sure. Um, you know, people can't see your eyes, and you you actually see some people wearing, uh, what, what's more popular today, I think, than glasses is the long neck turtlenecks with, like, a scarf to go around your mouth so that you don't see, like, facial twitches or emotions or expressions. And you see people actually pull up their scarf over their mouth and put their hand their fist over their mouth to kind of conceal hmm. all the emotions during a hand, um, and you know it's controversial. Some people say it shouldn't be allowed. You should be able to see the other person, and concealing emotions is a skill that you should not mask with physical things because it kind of takes away from the game. And other people think it's totally fair game. Push any edge you have. Um, I don't really have a super strong opinion about it. I think banning sunglasses at the table would would probably be good. I think it's I think it's probably better.
0: But it raises an interesting point, which comes to this idea of the ethics of poker. Um, there's a lot of stuff about sort of angle shooting versus cheating. You know, how far can you push some of those little uh, edges? What's your view on that? Is is there a win at all costs or is there a sort of code that underlies um, the, the way you, you play the game of poker?
2: Yeah, I believe you should, you know, the, the golden rule is kind of like what I think is fair. I mean it's sort of the same in life too right like there's certain laws that like you see companies behaving in ways that are very questionable sometimes and their their defense might be well we're just acting within the law but they're like clearly doing something that is like misinformation to the customer about you know pharmaceutical Thing or something like that, right? Like where it's like, it might be, maybe at is not the best example, but there's clearly examples that happen in the business world all the time where people feel like what should be right and wrong is not what's in the law, but that the company's defense is like, we're acting within the law, but then there are, there are more conscious companies that are doing what they think is in the best interest of the consumer, which, you know, they don't necessarily legally have to do that, but they, it, it, it feels more like the right thing to do. And I'm, I'm more along that line where I feel like in poker, it, I mean, yes, you should follow the rules, and and you can technically do whatever is legal. But at the same time, I feel like there's there's a way to behave that's just like you wouldn't want to put someone in a spot where if you weren't in the reverse spot, you would feel you would feel like they were yeah you, they would act the same way that you wanted them to act. And I feel like ultimately that's just the best play, independent of the rules, like just to do what is the the fair thing in in a, in a situation.
3: So Alec, our podcast is inspired by a line from the Rudyard Kipling poem, If. And in that poem, Kipling says this, If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. Reflections on that.
2: Well, first of all, it's a good hypothetical. But you should never risk all of your winnings on one heap. Uh, one, <laughs> all of your winnings on any heap. <laughs> World management 101. Like, I think any,
0: but didn't, you, didn't you just say, Alec, as a 19-year-old, as a 19-year-old, yeah. you went up seven figures and down seven figures. Did, did you... I guess it wasn't on one hand.
2: It wasn't on one hand. It wasn't in one <laughs> yeah. game. It was way yeah. overexposed, right? Needless <laughs> to say. Uh, I was also yeah. outmatched part of the time. No question. It wasn't all luck. I was outmatched. But... <laughs> If you're outmatched and you and you and you hedge your bets, you're going to lose a hundred, not a million, right? So, yeah. Um, and you're going to be able to figure it out in a short period of time, and then reevaluate with ninety percent of your portfolio left, right? That's why <laughs> the <laughs> same is true in the markets or or or, or any 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 investment. So <laughs> never do this hypothetical. <laughs> but I really love what he's saying. That the point of it, to me at least, is. If you can lose a significant amount at something, something that's meaningful to you, like a job or, a, or a, an investment or something goes wrong, right? Something that you really valued goes wrong, a business, or whatever. And you can, not, you can start over and not begrudge the luck or whatever, but actually focus on how you can improve and get better next time. You know, and then he goes on to say, if you can do all these things, you'll be a man, my son. And so it's like this is the ideal way to look at things. And I, and I really believe that to be true. I think he's hit the nail on the head here. It's like one of the things that separates you know, professional from an amateur is that an amateur might look at poker and say, oh, I got you – know, l- l- let me talk to you about this hand. And the hand that they'll talk to you about is a hand where nothing they could have done differently would change the outcome. But they're focused on the luck. So they're focused on the fact that an unfortunate card came and they lost the hand. And it's like that hand is worthless to analyze, albeit it might be painful or big or or, inter- or exciting. It's worthless to analyze because there's nothing you could have done that would change the expectation of your play or the outcome. But what the pros do is they analyze hands even, that the, even if they win the hand. Even if they double their money and win a huge pot, they'll analyze the hand because they'll focus on the quality decisions they're making because they know that in the long term it's focusing on what you can control that ultimately produces the desired result and winning or losing is simply the result of of the quality of decisions you make so if you win at poker it's not your objective it's the outcome your objective is to play the hand the best way possible so if you can lose a large amount of money lose something significant and start all over again the next day you get up you go back to the lab you study all the numbers you run the equities And you never breathe a word about your loss. You never complain about the fact that you lost. You never complain about the fact you got unlucky. You know, great athletes don't complain about the fact that the referee called the ball out when it was really in. They go back to the line and they serve the next point because they're focused on what they can control. And so if you can do that, then ultimately you're going to be a winner.
0: Alec, we often ask our guests a series of quick questions with quick answers. I'm a bit daunted about this because you've obviously got a pretty quick mind and you're probably going to do us here, but are you ready for a couple of quick questions? Let's do it. Your biggest win in a single hand?
2: Mm, Definitely in the big game in Macau and... Definitely played some seven-figure hands. I actually don't remember the biggest number, which is kind of ironic. You would think I would. Um, but I remember Se- the biggest seven hand figures. I lost. Yeah, I remember the biggest hand I lost.
0: Okay. well, you, you,
2: <laughs> you, typically yeah. remember, you typically just remember the pain more than the pleasure, and that's just the way <laughs> life works. But, yeah, it was we, definitely we... up there as well. I bluffed off a large amount of money to this guy that caught a – Miracle hand, and it didn't work out well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Following on from that, um, I asked you your, your biggest win. What about your best win? Is, is that different? Have you had a more satisfying hand that mightn't have been as, as astronomical in terms of the monetary side?
2: Yeah, so I think I, I wouldn't necessarily say my favorite win is the one that's the biggest, um, but I would say my favorite session of poker was... One, I played on Poker Night in America, which is a televised show in the U.S., and I was playing with some big names, like Phil Helmuth was there, he's a big name in our industry, and some other players, and I, in absolute terms, I didn't win as much as I had won in some of the other sessions or, or anything like that, but in units, I won a lot. So I won, I think, 1,000 units, which is a lot and it wasn't necessarily that only that i won that many units because there's some luck involved right like to win that many units no matter how good of a player you are you have to get lucky there has to be the deck set up in your favor but i felt like more than that i focus i measure my results on how well i play not on the outcome and that's something you're taught very early on as a poker player is i could have sessions where i lose money and feel extremely satisfied because i know that i should have lost more money and that if someone else was in my spot they probably wouldn't have lost as little as i lost and um but obviously there's something just evident about winning that you know no matter how much you try and shrug it off um it just makes you feel better so i'm sorry this isn't a short answer but the the gist of it is (laughs) this one session i played on poker night in america which was which also televised so the stakes were high and all my hands were recorded live so people could see the hands so they could see the way that the hands were played um, I did also win a lot of a lot of money, and I also won it in spots where I feel like people wouldn't have won as much necessarily. and so that was one of the most satisfying for me.
3: Do you believe in luck
2: in the short term? So if you run a simulation enough times the there's there's regression to the mean. so whatever a whatever probability something should happen, it will happen if you simulate it enough times. So for example, this is why the house always wins. Because let's say they have a 52, 53, 54% probability of winning on any given hand or spin or bet that's made in their casino. In any one hand, anyone could go and win. But the house wins because they manage their money in a way that allows them to, to... have people make multiple bets, and when you simulate that those bets long enough, the things will regress to their statistical mean. so if you flip a coin once, it might be tails. if you flip it twice, it might be tails, if you flip it ten times, it might be tails, all ten. but if you flip that coin a million times it 's going to be tails pretty much five hundred thousand mm-hmm. so right around and, and the plus or minus margin of error is gets smaller as you simulate more hands so i 've played three million hands of poker, so like if if I'm a winning player, I'm going to be winning after those amount of hands. Or if I'm a losing player, I'm going to be losing because I've played so many samples. And the same is true in life. Like you can get lucky and, and people get lucky all the time in life. When you start, start a business, there's, there's, there's luck or there's, there's um, luck on both sides. You can get unlucky with market timing or lucky or buying a stock. You buy a stock, it goes up. You can think you're a rock star. You buy a stock, and goes down. It could be the right bet. It just Things move against you. But in the long run, the, the better players in in poker in life are going to are going to win, and um, that's 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 I think that's how it works.
0: You see a lot of movies about casinos not taking favorably to people who do well in their establishments. Have you had any of these sort of um, gangster style experiences in your time?
2: No, never, because I've never played casino games. So I play poker against other players, and the ca- casino is different to who because they take what's called a rake which is an amount of money that comes out of every pot so like you can be the best or the worst player in the world they make the same amount off of you regardless so they they don't really care too much about poker players we don't get many benefits they're just sort of not too big on them one more Mm. thing on the luck point though i i want to clarify i think in luck there's not equal distribution in luck in terms of the hand that you're dealt in life so how you play the hand is all based on skill but the hand you're dealt is all based on luck And so in poker, it's true that people will get dealt equal hands over a period of time. Like everyone gets aces the same number of times if you play enough hands. But in poker, in life, it doesn't really work like that because you're only dealt one hand. Right, you mm. you can't control where you're born, can't control who your parents are, you can't control what education you get to a large extent, you can't control like what what health you're brought up with or, or diseases that you you get to a large extent if they're they're hereditary or genetic. So the hand you're dealt in life is completely based on luck, and I think people being more aware of that leads to people feeling more gratitude because most people listening, I would guess, if you put them out on a spectrum and you looked at the percentile of where they were relative to the rest of the world, they would be in the nineties. And certainly if you're born Mm. in Australia, right? It's one of the best places in the world, right? So, um, anywhere being born anywhere in Australia is, is a higher percentile. But if you only compare yourself to other people that were born in better situations, which we have the tendency to do, especially in our world through social media, we're comparing our life to the highlight reel of other people. It feels like we're not lucky, but we're only looking at the people that are above us. Right. But if you look at the whole spectrum then I think um luck is not distributed evenly. Like everyone in Australia is lucky and everyone in not everyone, but you know, the, the vast majority of everyone in Australia is on the on the high end of the spectrum simply by being born there. Whereas a lot of the people born in, in really impoverished third and fourth world countries are just unlucky. Right. So luck is not necessarily distributed evenly and you can't control the hand you're dealt. You can only control how you play it and so that's a little bit of the relationship between luck and skill in and, and, and life is, and, and poker as well. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify there because I do not want to sound like it's all about skill. <laughs> but certainly luck Good is arguably the biggest factor.
3: Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's listening. Would you play an evening of poker with Dan Bilzerian?
2: Wait, you said he's listening? Sorry.
3: I'm sure he's listening. Is he? Is he I'm, one of I'm our sure listeners? he's not.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was like, what? Oh, wait, So the question is, have I played with him?
3: have or would you
2: oh yeah i've played a lot of poker with dan yeah yeah, yeah. we played um we actually played um a pretty epic heads-up match in the bellagio in the in bobby's room which is like the private room in the back of the bellagio we played a, a heads-up match one time and um he's a tough player it's fun it was fun he's very aggressive classic example of what i described earlier where someone that can afford to make plays that other people can't. And that puts him at an advantage in certain ways where, you know, he puts you to a lot of tough decisions. I believe I had a technical edge, so that's why we ended up playing. But um, uh, it, it, ultimately the match went in my favor, but, um, you know, it was only one match and who knows what would happen if we played more. But um, yeah, we also, we traveled together some To in my early 20s. Um, we were part of the same poker site victory poker and so we went to cancun and milan and we, we traveled a little, little bit around together as well
3: we, we won't talk about the after parties <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you use music do you have a power song
2: i love music i grew up um in i was in choir in high school and musical theater so i i love music a lot i really appreciate different kinds of music and I sometimes listen to music when I play to kind of like get me back in the zone of the groove. I like to typically not listen to music while I'm playing because I like to be present and listening to what other people are saying. L- least of all, I mean, sort of multifaceted. A, I don't know which one comes from A, because it's more enjoyable. That's probably the biggest factor. And also you meet interesting people. But also there's there's a profit motive too when you're listening to people, you talk to people, you learn more about them, you see how they see the world. That helps you understand how they're going to make decisions at the table and you, you, you're sort of trying to translate that into how they're going to play against you specifically. So there's that fun component of that as well. Strategic component, but yeah, like before a session, I'll listen to music or if I have like, if I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm, in Italy now, if I'm biking to the coffee shop, I'll put on a song. Like sometimes I, I know podcasts are, are really popular or audio books, but like, I, and, I, and there's a place for those too. I listen to those as well. But sometimes I'll like literally just dedicate time to listening to music because I really, really enjoy it. And what I listen to is sort of just wide ranging, and, you know, just depends.
3: Okay. Follow-up question. Willie Nelson or Bon Jovi?
2: Bon Jovi.
0: <laughs> and my final question on a music theme Is Kenny Rogers' advice in The Gambler any good from a poker perspective? That's a good question.
2: Yes, it's actually very good. I mean, it's very simple, (laughs) but it's like, I mean, if you know when to hold them and know when to fold them, I mean, you're going to win a lot of money. I mean, that is poker. I mean, he very well uh, synthesized the essence of poker strategy. So power to him.
3: And to close out Alec, what's the difference between a good poker player and a great poker player?
2: A great poker player is always competing against themselves, trying to get a little bit better every single day.
0: Alec, that's probably a pretty good place to leave it and a pretty good metaphor for for any sort of venture in life. Listen, thank you very much. It's been awesome speaking to you, something I didn't know a lot about, but amazing parallels to a whole bunch of fields in life that, that you've described from your poker experience.
2: Tim, Ben, thank you guys so much. This was awesome. Much appreciated.
0: Thanks Alex. Please. Cheers. Buddy.
1: and the arts, and truly believe that these form a key component of resilience, and make the world a much more beautiful place. Music played on this podcast can reach over a thousand ears a day, and the incredible artists who gave us permission to use their music on Season 1 have been downloaded tens of thousands of times on Spotify. If you are a musician or band who wants to expose your songs to a global audience in over 100 countries, please get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com.